treat people like people, you know, treat people like you would like to be treated. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast. Before I introduce this week's guest, as always, I wanted to ask that you please leave a review, support the show. And I appreciate you in advance. Let me read this week's review. Five stars from Maddie at Podcasting You. Great podcast. This podcast is a great resource for anyone looking to learn more about the oil and gas industry. Paige is a great host. And each of her conversations with guests provides great insights. Thanks, Maddie. So I'm sitting here this afternoon with Seth Moore, Chief Operations Officer, Co-Founder and Executive Vice President at Catalyst Energy Services. How's it going, Seth? It's going great. How are you? Not too bad. How's Midland? You know, it's not a bad day out here today. The weather's not quite as hot as it's been. So oh, that's got to be a relief. It is a relief. We've had a fast start to the summer. So any day where it's not quite triple digit at one o'clock in the afternoon or so, we're happy. So <laughs> I hear you, but we also get that humidity here down in Houston. I know. I do not miss the humidity. <laughs> that's one of the things here with the weather that is enjoyable. <laughs> decrease in humidity. Of course, the flip side of that is everything is dry. So that's true. Everything has its pros and cons, as they say. Yeah, yeah. I'm down here looking like a cocker spaniel. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. but that's neither here nor there. Seth, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. You know, I come from a family of oil and gas industry veterans. And my grandfather and father. And I had a brother that he was older than me by 10 years. So he was almost, you know, like a big brother, truly a big brother. And he followed kind of the family tradition of going into the industry. I really did not feel that would be my calling. But in listening to the fun he was having, I decided to follow a similar path, take a similar path. Oh, yeah. So what kind of fun was he having? (laughs) <laughs> he was young and relatively young and, you know, making attractive income for a person his age, learning and growing his skills, getting to work with exciting people, working a lot of it outdoors, you know, out in the wilds, so to speak. You know, I think that was a thing that attracted to him. And of course, this is in the early 80s. So they worked hard and they played hard. And Hearing those stories, it sounded like something that might be, it was certainly attractive to me at the time. He also was growing his skills, and I saw him being able to grow skills to the point where it opened doors for him that maybe other careers, he wouldn't have that same opportunity. And I started drawing the parallels between what he was doing and some of what I had was wanting out of life at the time for a young teenager. So that kind of started the ball rolling in my mind as far as what I would want to do. Okay. Okay. So you started out in Louisiana, right? I did. I was raised in Louisiana, small town. Oh, which one? Faraday. 
So Ooh, I haven't even heard of that. I'm from Louisiana well, as well. Okay, so it's on the eastern side of the state, about halfway up, kind of across the river from Natchez, Mississippi. If that, I was going to say, that, basically Mississippi. <laughs> well, that's right. We've got a lot of famous people from the town of Ferdy. Actually, Nikki Gilly was born and raised there. He and my mom, they were each other's first boyfriend-girlfriend. Oh, that's awesome. Nikki Gilly just passed a couple of weeks ago. I hated seeing him go, I think. It certainly is. You know, as a native of Faraday, we lost a good ambassador for the town, but he had a long life, very fruitful in terms of his music career. But yeah, that's where I was raised, born and raised. Very, There's some oil and gas industry there, of course, a lot of farming, agricultural adventures that go on. And there's, you know, some other industry that area is seen its ups and downs over the years. But I'm proud to be, you know, to have been raised there and proud to call it my native home. Good, good. So you started out at Halliburton, right? I did. I was the 18-year-old kid back then hired on with Halliburton and was working in the shop. And my dad, he had all kinds of businesses. So we learned all of, I have two brothers and a sister, and we all learned how to mechanic and fix things because it was a necessity. So I went to work in the shop. They had an opening and things had been good. Times had been good in the early 80s. It kind of gotten bad. And there was a bright spot in 84. And I came in, was able to get in. And of course, the bottom fell out of it later in 85 and 86. But that was okay. I got on the ship while the ship was sailing. So, and after a few years of that, I decided I wanted to go into the field. That's what my brother had done. He worked in the field. And so I followed in, in that footstep. We worked in different districts in different areas even. So I wasn't working with him but he worked for the same company. He worked for Halliburton. And I did that and decided that was fun. And the camp that I was working in closed. They actually closed that camp down in 88. The industry had gotten really bad and commodity prices were horrible. And there wasn't a lot of drilling activity going on. And so I transferred to another area, which is Harvey, Louisiana, which was outside of New Orleans. And they had a little bit of going on in the Gulf. So I was able to get that and do some work in the inland barges and Gulf of Mexico. And it was a fun transition to learn that side of the industry as well, that side of the business. And then after six years in the industry, I found myself as a college freshman at age 24. So that was a challenge. But Oldest one there, right? <laughs> yeah, I was the oldest one there. Luckily, I looked young for my age at the time. So I didn't have quite as many battle wounds and scars as I do today, so I wasn't a total outcast, but it was challenging, and I kept working. So I was working in the industry and going to school. Now, this is in the days before online and, you know, distance learning. Yeah, you had to physically be there. You did, and so I'd take night classes. I would take, I'd go and talk to professors, and I'd work with them, and I I was flip between land and offshore. And so I would be one of the guys that would sometimes have books spread out in my truck, you know, studying while I was on location during some of the downtime between work. So looking back on it, I'm a bit amazed that I went through all of that, but I did have fun doing it. It certainly can shape who you are, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go on further to what else you did at Halliburton, because you were there for almost 29 years. Yeah, I worked in, you know, did those roles. And then after graduating college, I 
moved into the office and in into an office role where we were coordinating offshore rigs, the cementing in the Gulf of Mexico. We had units out on those rigs and, you know, we would design large cement jobs. And, you know, there's a lot of logistics that go into that with cement and additives having to be sent offshore. And then you have supervisors offshore that, you know, mix those, you know, run the equipment and oversee the mixing and the execution of those jobs. And at that time, there were a lot of rigs running in the Gulf of Mexico. And and importantly, there was a lot of rigs that Halliburton had units on. So there was a group of us coordinators and we managed that for the company. So I did that. That was my first kind of office stint. And then about a year into that, I had the opportunity to go into sales. Back then, they didn't call you a sales representative. You were a technical advisor because you kind of designed the technical part of the job and you oversaw that part of it. And, you know, of course, you did the commercial side as well. So you were responsible for the technical creation as well as the commercial creation for that work. And did that for quite a few years, four years, I believe. And then I went to Houston and was on the global team for cementing. And, you know, that was my first foray into product line management at a global level. And it's pretty interesting work. So, yeah, yeah. well, that was my path. It was a little bit in it. There was a period in there where for over a few years where it's looking back on it, it seems a bit like a whirlwind. You know, one day I was doing a coordinating role. Then I was shortly after that, I was in a technical advising role, designing stuff kind of from the ground up. And then you know, if you jump ahead a few years and I'm on a global team, which was a pretty small team that managed Halliburton's legacy product line. You know, it was learning at a very fast pace, but very enjoyable. Great team that I worked in, got to be mentored by some true industry leaders and people that took an interest in helping me grow my skills. And I'm forever grateful. Yeah. Yeah. And then so after Halliburton, you went on to a Halliburton company, Boots and Coots. <laughs> well, yes. At that point, they were kind of together and I wasn't there a super long, long time, but I had worked in the past in my field days. I was in one of the districts that I was in. We did a lot with well control and bringing wells on and helping get blowouts under control. So I had some background in that. I came on that team. I wasn't there for a super long time before leaving Halliburton. But again, it was neat to see, to get to experience that side of the industry again, that segment of the industry, and a lot of respect for what those guys do. Guys and that team does pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. I've had to do a bunch of oil spill drills back in the day. Mm -hmm. So I remember that being a part of it. So those are the guys, a lot of people, you know, hope they never need to call. Absolutely. Of course, they do a lot of their effort is spent on prevention. So, you know, it's bring them in early. You don't have to bring them in for a bad reason. But Exactly. So, yes, that was a fun time. Okay. So after that, you went to Magna Energy Services, and then you also worked for Key Energy Services. Vice yes. Uh, my family, I was in Houston, and we had been deployed and been stationed at just north of Denver in the Rockies. And my family was wanting to get back up there. So I took a role with Magna. That was kind of, the, you know, you go from mega corp to a really small company. It's almost it backwards, was, right? It's backwards, but it was fun because you get to see, you know, your actions today 
produce almost immediate results. So, you know, in a very large corporation, you can you know work on things that it may take weeks or months or sometimes longer to see the results. In a small company like that, it's you almost see them immediately. That's rewarding. Of course, the flip side is is that you don't have a lot of resources. There's no umbilical back to the mothership, so to speak, to <laughs> get all of these great resources to come riding, you know, over the hill and the cavalry to come help you. You're kind of on it your own. So I did that and survived that and thought, well, I can do something different. I can survive in an environment that's not so resource plentiful as it was with Halliburton. And nothing wrong with having lots of resources. It's just we weren't afforded that luxury. Most small companies aren't. Yeah. And that's where you have to wear many hats. Yes. Yeah. I definitely get that. I work for a small company. So, (laughs) all right. So then you left Colorado and somehow ended up in the Permian Basin. Yes. I got a call and my wife and I are from the same town and we both had parents that were aging. It was a very long drive to get from where we were to our parents' homes in Louisiana and getting to the Permian put me about halfway. So (laughs) I'm like, well, I'm closer and I'm on I-20 and that helps a lot. So we took a role here. I had the guy that brought me in. I had a lot of respect for him and enjoyed getting to work for him. And Jeff Skelly was his name or is his name. And Jeff and I, just fantastic getting to work there. And I really expanded my resume in terms of the different parts of the industry. I had never really worked with drilling rigs. I had had a little stint with workover rigs and completion rigs with Magna, but not to the degree, obviously, that a big company like Key had. We had a fishing and rental business that was something that I I understood those lines of business, but I did not have experience in managing those and supporting those. So I got to gain experience there. And then Key had a large fluid management business, you know, from saltwater disposals to water sales to trucking. I got to, again, experience that. So that was a fun time. It brought me to the Permian and, you know, got to work with a really lot of great people there. A lot of respect for what those guys do. It's a tough market, tough business, but some really great leaders and great mentors that I got to work with and that key. That's great. So let's talk about your current role at Catalyst. Well, what an exciting, you know, position this has been from getting a call from a fellow co-founder and CEO, Bobby Chapman, had an idea and said, I think we can do this. And you know, it took a little bit of convincing. We met and, you know, here we are four years later. But, you know, being a fellow co-founder of the company, you know, we you mentioned the many hats and we started off with a dream. We didn't have equipment. We were building a team. We didn't really have a customer. We knew we wanted to be, you know, we had a vision of being a frack company and we were ordering equipment. But back then in 2018, equipment dates were a long way out. So, you know, we waited six, seven months to get equipment. And during that time, we were building a team. And so that took a lot of effort. You know, it takes a lot of effort to get something moving. 
along the way, you know, we had an idea before we even started the company on this a different technology that would kind of change the equation of frac and how things are done. But that takes time as well. So we, we started down a kind of a conventional path and to build some history with, you know, as a company, I think people knew us as individuals and they knew we were, you know, had experience. And But, you know, when you brand as a company, people tend to think of you as that company. So we started down a path of conventional, I'll say conventional frack, you know, conventional type equipment. It was all the latest equipment at the time, pure four final equipment. But we started down that path and then, you know, things were going good and we added actually another fleet conventional style tier four fleet tier four final fleet in 2019 and we were developing our technology which takes a lot to do what we've done looking back on it it took a lot of effort to to get that developed as well we were doing it in-house so managing a day-to-day frac operation and managing this large technology project it took a lot of effort but we were going along and life was great we were you know, talking strategy around expansion and how much expansion and how quick and, of course, you know, rumbling down the track headed straight for us was a global pandemic that we weren't expecting. And so <laughs> right. it hit us, you know, hit us head on and we were able to survive that. We were shut down for a few months. And one of the guys here likes to say, say we were watching the pages fall off the calendar you know (laughs) that's a visual yeah there were a few months in there we were maybe i like to say maybe reconsidering our life choices but i tell everybody the world was coming to an end as we knew it and but you know brighter days were ahead and we came out of it now we've got this technology it's in the field you know went through all these field trials and and like with anything with any type of innovation you go through tweaks and you, you learn things you don't know what you don't know and you figure things out and you kind of go back and make make changes. And now we're commercial. We're growing commercially with this technology. So that's been, I would sum all that up by saying it's been the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, so to speak, in the last, you know, certainly in the last two years. But all in all, it's been, to be at this point in my career and get to experience this has been nothing short of, you know, phenomenal. That's so, awesome. That's so great to hear. And I'm so glad y'all survived. Yeah, we're pretty lean and pretty frugal. And I know there were a lot of really good companies out there that didn't fare. They didn't fare as well. And heart goes out to those guys because we, you know, we think of companies, but in reality, it's just a collection of individuals. I know and there's a lot of good individuals that got impacted by that. I hate to see that. but I do too. I think all those people that want to work are working today. So that's the good news of it all. Yeah, it is. So with your vast experience, what is leadership to you, Seth? I think at a real high level for me, it's about serving your people. So that takes on different meanings and different tones. It may be making sure simply that everybody has the proper training and the proper resources and, you know, to do their job, the proper, you know, all, all the things that it takes for them to do their job. And that sounds easy, but I can assure you it's not. Sometimes even the clarity of what the mission is, even, and I'm not talking like company mission, I'm talking about 
may be the mission of the day, may be the mission of the hour. Sometimes that can get clouded, especially when you're dealing with so much equipment and so many people. The distractions can become overwhelming. So trying to bring some level of clarity, sift through all that and provide that support to serve those that are truly, you know, moving the needle. I think at the heart of it, that to me is leadership. Very good. So you kind of already talked about the harder parts. What are the easier parts of being a leader? My view on it is, is that, you know, treat people like people, you know, treat people like you would like to be treated. I was going to say, when, do unto others. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, some people have that easily. It's part of their DNA. And maybe, I don't know if it's, I'm not sure, nature versus nurture, right? I don't know if that was nurtured into them by whoever reared them or if it's truly part of the nature, part of their DNA. But I think as long as you have that, that becomes, that's pretty easy, yeah. you know? And it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean that we, you know, we all have jobs to do. We have to perform at those jobs. We have to execute. Nobody gets a free pass, right? Even as a co-founder of a company, you don't get a free pass. So, but if you treat people like people first and there's with dignity and respect and those things that, you know, that certainly lays the groundwork for other things to be able to be built upon. So... Well, with that being said, if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? It's about the people. That's pretty straightforward. <laughs> we spend a lot of time, a lot of effort in serving our customers, in strategizing you know, around this customer's project or that customer's project, or how do we grow here? How do we grow there? You know, And we have to remind ourselves that the people that help us execute that matter, you know, equally as much or more than the strategy creation around, you know, anything external. So it's not always easy to, you know, you you have to remind yourself. It's not something that you wake up every day thinking, so to speak, because oftentimes the customer is one that gets a lot of our attention. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just saying sometimes if you're not careful, I think we've probably all been guilty of it where we've taken our eye off of the people. So yeah, I can see that. I've learned some humbling, had some humbling life lessons in that myself. So as a leader, if you can keep that future leaders, even if you can keep that in mind, we all say, you know, I've I've seen there's all kind of catchphrases you see and, you know, businesses and on the social media, but. And buzzwords. Buzzwords and all those great, you know, adages that you see, but reality is those that live that are going to embody that, the ones that are going to outperform in the long haul. Makes sense. So what book influenced you the most? I could answer that on several fronts. You know, some that I've read um, early on in my leadership career, one, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That was a very I mean, impactful book. Looking back on it, I think, well, that's you know, it's fairly intuitive, but I think having it in a collection where you're able to read through it systematically, I think that probably helps, you know, maybe solidify that in terms of a young leader. Several, lot, lots of books, you know, Who Moved My Cheese? That was a real popular book in probably the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. I think I've heard of that one. Yeah, that was a good book. So Malcolm Gladwell, I read a lot of his stuff. He's one of those exciting writers that kind of 
ties stuff together that you don't always, you know, maybe you wouldn't necessarily tie together to learn a parallel, which kind of makes you think about problems that you may be or opportunities that you may be facing within a company, situations that you're trying to maximize or optimize the outcome on, and, you know, how that something that you experienced earlier may tie to that, even though if you looked at them individually, you wouldn't see that correlation. I like the way he helps readers in that regard. He's gotten a lot of my attention in the last probably five years, maybe more. Well, that's good. That's good. So what's your most used business tool? Ooh, you know, in the role that I'm in today, giving my time to people is a very useful tool. That's true. I think everybody talks about an open door policy. Open door is great. I almost say, I would say open door because you've walked out of it and you've gone to see somebody and you give them your time. You ask the question of how can I serve you better? What can I do to help you today? What is it that you need from the organization? How can I help you reach your objectives easier or quicker? That relatability tool, that approachability tool, but that proactive nature in taking that, those things a step further, I think has a big impact, can have a really big impact on getting people aligned and not just feeling that they're working for some you know, unseen, unheard you know, group of people, C-suite group or whatever the case may be, that they see that we're like them. So we have aligned goals. So that's one of my tools that I use the most. So. Very good. It's different than I've heard before. So fantastic. Who is your most respected competitor? Well, you know, we've got a lot of successful competitors out there. And I think, you know, when you look at we're a small company, really small. But when we look at some of the companies that maybe aren't so small anymore, but started small. Yeah, those guys, there are several that we respect. The Alamo guys, of course, that's next year now. And they, they a lot of respect for that team and what they did in the period of time they did it in. You know, of course, you start naming people, you feel bad because you feel like you've not named everybody and somebody gets their feelings hurt. You know, that goes. And, and in my memories, I'm remembering everybody's name or every company's name is probably not as good as it should be. But okay, then. The Pro Petro guys, I mean, they seem to be doing really well and kind of have a real, they're not a small company, but they service their customers, internal and external, like they are. And I have a respect for that. So, like I said, there's a great, lot of great competitors out there that are doing good things in the industry. So Good deal. What's your most important lesson learned, Seth? You know, to not get too sure of yourself, make certain that you realize that you don't forget where you come from, make certain that you realize that you have people on the team that add value and, you know, they need to feel that they can contribute. They need to feel that they're respected and appreciated that people have choices, employees have choices, and you want them to pick you. And that's a lot of that is in how well you serve them. So, right, right. So, why do you think your role now is important to the future of the industry? One of the things that we're doing in my role now is making sure that we keep sight on constant improvement and innovation. You know, how do we do that? And keeping everybody aligned to that while not, you know, forgetting what got us here. So that's the challenge, making sure that 
what we're doing today is going to lay groundwork for future things to come. I think that's important. And then I think as a equipment and process, you know, technology innovator is we spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time looking at how do we constantly get better? What do we take that's out there? How can we improve upon that? And that falls a little bit maybe outside of traditional COO type role, but we consider ourselves very much a technology company, very much an innovate and a company of innovation and being able to spend the right amount of time looking at how do we constantly get better, not just in little ways, but big ways as well. How do we change the way things are done? Because, you know, people can buy equipment and they can hire people and they can be in business and do some of the things that we do. Some of the things that some of the big companies do, but we feel strongly that those that have a technology strategy that they can deliver to will outperform in the end. There will be, you know, good things that come from that for the industry and for the company and for those people in the company. So that's where I add value as I see it. Good. Good. You have a favorite podcast? You know, I have not been a big podcast listener until the last probably till late in twenty one. Okay. But I really liked the OGGN. I know you think well, people listen say, oh, it's a plug. No, it's not. I've learned a lot about some different industries or different subsets within the oil and gas industry about some individuals and about companies. And from a business perspective, that's been one of my favorite, you know, podcasts. I do a few things I, in exercising. I listen to some of the history-based podcasts, which are kind of fun, but there's lots of that out there, crime and history and different things. But yeah, the OGGN has been Oil and Gas Global Network series. And now I'll tell you, you, you need a book, a map almost on all the different podcasts. That yeah, OGGN we have has. a bunch. I, you know, I thought it was like one. And then I started listening and no, I started looking. And I was like, <laughs> wow, man, Mark and his team have been busy. So it's educational. I wish I had more time to listen to more of them. Maybe at some point we'll slow down enough that we'll be able to to do that. Well, we are coming into summer, so it might slow down just a smidgen for you. That's right. Uh, good. Yeah, maybe you'll get some time, and we appreciate you being a loyal listener. Well, thank you. Yeah, really appreciate that. So if people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Catalyst, Seth, how might they go about doing so? Yeah, we have a presence on social media. Certainly, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. We have a website, the Catalyst.com website. People can go in and there's a contact us and there are several opportunities to several avenues that they can go to reach us. We have menus on the website that can direct them to all kinds of opportunity to interact within Catalyst. So I would encourage them to go that route. I certainly I have a LinkedIn page and people I get reached out to quite a bit that way. So good. Good. I'll make sure to add those links to the show notes so people can get a hold of you. Perfect. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. Thank you so much, Seth. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com. Yeah.